Well, welcome once again, everybody. Welcome back to the All Saints podcast. And I am very, very excited to introduce to you my guest this week. I'm speaking with a friend of mine, Jerry Boyer, who some of you may have heard of. He's been doing the rounds on various podcasts that may have crossed your feed at some point. Uh, He is an author uh, and he is a very, very effective worker in an area of the uh, Christian world and the the. conservative economy more broadly, which I'm very keen for him to talk to you about. And uh, as we get to know him, he's got some, he's written some fantastic and insightful material. I want to get uh, him to share some of that material with you. Jerry Boyer, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Pastor Jeffrey, great to be with you. Well, listen, perhaps we should just kick off, just jump straight into the deep end. Tell us, what is it that you do to put bread on the table and milk in the fridge? By the way, I'm going to match your cross-politic mug. (laughs) With my daily dose of Greek. That's uh, that's very classy. Mm-hmm. There aren't many economists who've got the daily dose of Greek down. Yeah, I was given this last I was given this last week, no last two weeks ago. I went on um, I was in uh, Moscow for the CREC Council and Presbyteries meeting and I ended up on cross politic for an hour and a half. Um, oh, I didn't see that. You didn't see that. It was lots of fun. Well they were very gracious. They they sat and go on. Were you like a calming influence there? Or did Jerry, you like you, web it up even you, more? You know me too well. So so I, I brought some coffee, which I'd roasted myself, which I gave to them. Um, and I think that, well, listen, I, I talked with them for hours beforehand and, and hours afterwards. They were very gracious. I had some comments about um, the 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 inevitable effects of the, the kind of business model and engagement model that they've got there at CrossPolitik, which I think is really, really effective in lots of ways. But um, like anything that's that's got a certain revenue model and relies on that and also generates uh, hits via social media, it comes with some inbuilt downsides. And they were very gracious in hearing me about, and they pushed back a little bit. And we identified some areas of agreement, some areas of disagreement. And I, I think it was a very helpful conversation. And I've had some comments and so on from folks in the congregation here who liked it too. But yeah, they're a good bunch of guys. I like them a lot. And um, even when they say things that make me go, uh, you know, they're still brothers in Christ. You know, they're, they're a bit yeah. like Samson, you know, smashing things up. But at least Samson is on our side, right? Exactly. I, I love those guys and I've been on with them. But it's like once mm-hmm. in a while, it's a little bit like Doug Wilson World in general. It's like, you know, there's maybe like yeah. if, there's, if you if, if you edit it out 3%, right. Right. then I could unhesitatingly say to everybody, go listen, go read, you know, uh, but yeah, – yeah. I always have to say, well, you got to watch. Sometimes they this. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. That, right? Well, it's interesting because I'll say this to you and to everybody here because I said it to them in public. And they, like I said, they heard it very graciously. Um, I, I think it's it's exactly that kind of order. It's 2 or 3% of broken glass in the coffee jar. And that makes me feel like, oh, sometimes a little more nuance, a little more care, more precision. Um, cutting back on the serrated edge a little bit would be would mean that it would be possible to give an unequivocal endorsement. But I love those guys. You know, and I, I did, I was, I, I'll tell you this, I had a conversation with um, uh, a Gabe afterwards and we had breakfast together. And I was, I was joking. I said, my biblical heroes are people like um, Samson and Boaz. And yes. I said, I bet, I, sorry, not Samson, Samuel and Boaz. And I said, I bet, I, yours are, I, bet, I bet yours are Samson, right? <laughs> and, and, and he sort of smiled, you know, and I, I think... You know, we, we're all on the same team and I uh, love those guys uh, for all the good things they do. I, I feel like that's true. There's a lot of people like that, um, that just do like really wonderful things and get so much right. Um, you know, there's like sections of the Christian nationalist movement where I say, oh, wow, they're really raising these great issues. And mm-hmm. yeah. and then out of the blue, there'll be something about interethnic marriage. And it's like, OK, yeah. now you're unusable. Yes, you know, yes, um, yes. now I'm not saying that's the same with the cross politic guys because it isn't. They, they're not playing with that stuff. Right. No, um, that's right. All I'm saying is that, you know, I really for, for the brothers who I really like and want to say more good about, I, 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 I would want them um, not just cross politic, but a, a lot of them. I would want them to say that when they say something, how about another brother? who wants mm-hmm. to say amen to me that now has to hedge it. Right. Um, but, you know, before saying these, this is the place to go. Yeah. Um, this totally. is a, this is a well that you can drink from, um, you know, and, and, and it's good water, but once in mm-hmm. a while, you, you know, it would be, 
But I, the problem, I think, with the social media model, which I think is what you alluded to, is you, you almost have to shock in order to get the attention, in order to get the good stuff heard. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. And I, I don't, and, I don't and actually, that problem. It's economics again, isn't it? It's the science of incentives and it's perverse incentives where um, there, be, there comes a point where, and I, I said this to the cross politic guys, and actually, you know, they, they, so I, here's how I framed it. Like the, the danger is if you uh, say something that's a bit overstated to the point where it's misleading. And I had in mind one or two things, but I didn't mention specifically what they are. I said, what, what are you going to do then? And um, uh, David, uh, Chocolate Knox, as he's called on the screen, um, David said, well, we repent. And I think, okay, well, fair enough. I mean, you've got to take that at face value. You've got to be ready to say that's well-intentioned. That's not deceptive. That's a Christian brother saying that's what he'd do. And he just disagrees with, in that case, me, maybe you as well, about what things they did get wrong. And, yeah. um, But you're right. The, and this brings me actually to one of the things I wanted to let, talk let with me, you about. Let me bring a positive example of that. Yeah. They did an episode where they were talking about voter fraud yeah. and, and Dominion voting. And there had been a meme out there. I think it started with Eric Metaxas, um, which was that Dominion voting. I maybe it started with Gateway Pundit, which is a junk news site. Yeah, I don't. I, mean, I don't is, know what that is. <laughs> it's 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 one of those sites that um, puts out stuff before it's really verified. Um, right. And it was that Dominion voting was owned by the Chinese government or hmm. the Chinese Communist Party. Okay. So I'm a finance person, so I can go on Bloomberg and confirm ownership. Yeah. And I saw that somebody somewhere had essentially confused two companies that have similar names. Right. Um, and the, I told the cross-politic guys, uh, wait, that story's not true. Mm -hmm. And the next episode, they came out and they said, looks like that story isn't true. Right. So credit due. Uh, yep. On the other hand, Amen. I said that to Metaxas and- he didn't say that story isn't true. Right. And, you know, a lot of other people didn't and they've gotten sued for it. Uh, but the right. cross politic guys, I said, no, they, they're confusing a name that, that, you know, there was some, there's, it's like, um, here's a giant company and over here it has a Chinese subsidiary and over here it has a subsidiary and that mm -hmm. subsidiary, you know, has uh, an investment, um, has a stake in Dominion, which is a small mm -hmm. stake. And they're confusing parents and subsidiaries, right? You know, right, gotcha. um, and because they are they are similar names, so no, there's no ownership interest, no control, whatever. Right. Um, right. And uh, and they they ran a recant they recanted it, right? Yeah, so good for them. Credit, the credit, credit. they're willing credit. to do that, right? Yeah. The one I had in mind was uh, the recording. It's quite famous a year ago now, um, where they had Jason Farley talking about Baptist theology as the origin of, uh, or at least a, a significant contributing factor to the transgender ideology, you know, the, that that you can be whatever you will to be, that finding affinities between Baptist theology. I know, crazy, right? And, and I, I wanted to say, look, guys, I, I, as it happens, I've done a little bit of work on the background of transgender ideology because I've been speaking about critical social justice ideology and a bunch of related things. Um, yeah, you, you do not see Baptist theology in the causal chain. Right. Baptist theology has been around since 1689. And I think, right. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it, it, it's um, and, and, I, that's I, why, and that's why the Baptists have so embraced the um, transgender ideology, whereas the Episcopalians have so thoroughly rejected it. Right. You do wonder. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's certainly yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Methodists and the press and the. Uh, and the Episcopalians and all the Pado Baptists have just been really great on these issues. And yeah, yeah. the Southern uh, Baptists, I mean, it's it's a silly stretch. Yeah, so, uh, just for the sake of those of you who are listening to this rather than watching on video and who don't know Jerry Boyer's sense of humor, he was joking with that last comment. You would have yes, seen smiling. Yes, I was joking. <laughs> oh, right. And there's a lot of Baptists, so you don't want to tick them off. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get there's you into more trouble. There's a number of Episcopalians, so we can afford to offend yeah, them. Yeah. I don't want to get um, you into more trouble than you're already in from talking to me. So, um, <laughs> all right. Okay, listen. Well, that, that was a... Uh, 10 minutes or so of um, uh, unscheduled and very illuminating discussion. And I, I want to segue neatly from that um, via the thought that what's needed in thought leadership and cultural leadership is careful, nuanced analysis and thought deployed with rigor and care. I want to segue uh, via that connection to let's talk about your 
work. And we'll talk about your book as well, the one that I've read most recently, The Maker Versus The Takers. Tell us um, the question I asked 10 minutes ago. What do you do to put bread on the table, Jerry? Um, mostly what I've done is economic um, forecasting right. for asset managers, for money managers, um, and especially helping to build portfolios. Um, people have heard of mutual funds, mainly... Yes. Mutual funds aren't mainly what people do anymore. ETFs are right. the kind of that vehicle, um, but people still call them mutual funds. Let's just say funds, mm-hmm. helping to build funds, um, which use certain fixed principles that we find revealed in the Bible, um, essentially using using approach called uh, principle-based investing, which is that this is based on the premise. Um, you can look it up. There's a wiki page on this. It's based on the premise that the parable of the house built on sand versus the house built on stone is the most insightful risk analysis um, story ever written. Mm. Um, And that high risk situations are situations in which the fundamental principles of reality are being violated. Mm. And low risk situations are ones in which those principles are being obeyed. Uh, And when a storm comes along, And there's floodwaters, then you find out who's high risk or low risk. So people would say, well, yeah, that's obvious. But essentially, the entire industry is based on modern portfolio theory. And modern Mm -hmm. portfolio theory is based on a randomist understanding of risk. Modern portfolio theory says that volatility is risk. So if the price of something moves around a lot, that's risky. But of course, you might realize, you see my hand going up and down, mm-hmm. could be going up. Is it risky when it goes up? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, actually, in modern portfolio theory, it's risky when it moves, essentially. So it doesn't have any real risk, any robust risk model. Um, and what I've pointed out is that modern portfolio theory essentially came you know, um, from uh, a, a, a scholar who rejected classical economics, rejected his Jewish upbringing, read, read Hume, became an atheist, read Darwin, became a Darwinian, and then went on and created a, an atheist Darwinian model right. on a Keynesian foundation. So that when people are involved with economics and finance, they think they're in maybe some kind of morally neutral sphere. Uh, but that hmm. John Maynard Keynes had a worldview shift towards quote, the higher sodomy, as he would put it, um, and Mm -hmm. atheism. Uh, um, And Harry Markowitz had uh, maybe a slightly more tame shift away from his Jewish... Markowitz is the modern portfolio theory guy. The founder of modern portfolio theory. And then that whole crowd got a dozen or more Nobel Prizes, Hmm. which is essentially the Nihil Obstat, it's the Vatican of, of the economics industry. Yep. And they were able to se- essentially infiltrate not just the economics departments, but the finance departments. Yep. And that everybody who's working as a professional in finance and economics has to have thoroughly inculcated that. Right. And, and the politics departments as well. Right? Said, What's that? And the politics departments as well. I mean, Keynesian um, uh, uh, f- uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy is just we're still full of that. Right. We are. That's right. And it still governs every central bank that I know of in the world, certainly the Mm. United States. Um, And it became the foundation of modern portfolio theory. So there's a lot of Christian financial advisors out there. uh, They're they're financial advisors or maybe they're even certified financial advisors, CFAs. And they're using modern portfolio theory because they think that's the best. So this would be the Christ, the best of culture rather than the Christ transforms culture in Niebuhr's um, analogy. They just think that's the best. Right. And they don't understand that it was built on a foundation of random, you know, what Hume said is there is no cause and effect in the universe. You can't really know anything. Um, math is its own hermetically sealed off area. It doesn't have anything to do with reality. Um, right. And right. essentially, that's modern portfolio theory. No cause and effect analysis. It's it's driven entirely by mood mm-hmm. uh, or what Keynes would call animal spirits. So I helped build economic forecasting models and actual operating funds based on the rejection of that approach and the recentering 
on the idea that a country is a better place to invest if they have sound money, strong property rights, good rule of law, reasonable levels of debt, you know, incentives for productivity in the form of low and flat taxes. Right. Uh, so allocation decisions across countries are made based on that, not just based on momentum or random price variations. Right. And within within a country like within the United States, you look at the board of, of, of directors of the company, and this will segue over to the other thing that's growing. Mm. And is are, does the board understand that is the company structured in such a way that this, the CEO works for the board and the board works for the owner, the investor? As opposed to what happens is CEOs essentially capture their boards, insulate themselves from their owners, and mm. think of themselves as the masters, not the stewards of our clients' money. Right. So you want the CEO to be working for the investor. You've got it, exactly yeah. to know it and to have a and to have bylaws and a charter and a structure that hardwires that into the operation of the company. Just before we leave that topic, I had one question. I mean, just in the portfolio management domain, there is some kind of correlation between risk and long-term return, correct? So you can put your money in a very, very low interest money market account or uh, government bonds and incur a very low risk of capital erosion, but the cost of that is a lower rate of return. Whereas historically, if you've invested in uh uh, funds or in stocks that are more volatile, you can expect on average over a long period of time a better return. But what you're saying is that not everything lies on that straight line, correct? You're, yeah, the- yeah. For instance, uh, one of the things that we know is it's not linear, as you right. as you said, because for instance, the highest volatility stocks tend to over underperform. Right, right. So the theory is that essentially they attract gamblers. They attract someone with a gambler's mindset. Right. So what I would say is you should ignore volatility as a risk factor for long-term money. So if you need the money next year, you should be looking at volatility because if it's going up and down a lot, maybe this is the year it goes down and you need Mm -hmm. it next year. But of course, if someone's in the stock market, I mean, any decent investor knows that you don't have short-term money in the stock market, right? Uh, No financial advisor says, oh, you need the money next year, let's put it in the stock market. It's this, you know, it's what is the money you need in 10 years or whatever. Um, so what I would say is if somebody seeks to avoid risk by going towards low volatility, um, they are give, they are likely to be giving up returns. Right. Now here's, right. here's the irony of it. Um, they often actually get, end up with more risk because if volatility equals risk, Okay, well, that's all well and good, um, but that's always backward looking. Mm-hmm. So up until about 2008, um, you know, what was low risk? Mortgage backed securities, mortgages <laughs> and real estate were cons- real estate, essentially mortgages backed by real estate, mm-hmm. securitized, had been a low volatility asset class. They didn't move around much. They were boring. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it turns yeah. out that they were extremely yeah. risky when the flood yeah. came. They became, they became interesting in all the wrong ways. <laughs> they became interesting. All, and Markowitz actually, you know, uh, uh, after that, he did a webinar. I don't know if it's still out there where he basically said, all right, I take the blame. <laughs> we said volatility. We said volatility is risk. People went to mortgage-backed security because they were low volatility. Mm. And it turned out that they were really high risk. So we, I take the blame for financial engineering. Okay, right. so after that. What's the next low volatility, super low risk asset class? Oh, treasury bonds. Hmm. Well, treasury bonds are collapsing now and have been, right? So there's the problem with low volatility. So people thought they were safe. And I've been warning about this people for years. Like you feel safe. So you're going with treasuries because we've lived in an environment where treasuries were always going up because the central bank was always buying them. But eventually the central bank had to sell them to um, affect interest rates to try to fight inflation. At least they thought they had to. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so they weren't safe. They were like really risky. And so risk averse retirees were in treasury bonds, which are terrible performing asset class. Right, right. So you can't avoid the You can't avoid the fact that ultimately reality is personal. Mm -hmm. There's a three person God behind it. 
and that there are cause and effect relationships between our behavior and the results, even though they don't play out necessarily in the short run. Mm. You can't avoid those things and just math your way into risklessness or returns. Um, but what that means is you do have to be willing to put up with volatility and you have to be willing to be out of, you know, out of favor with the herd. Right, right. And, uh, and so that takes you into a domain where you're interested not just in uh, company fundamentals, financial fundamentals, but you're also interested in character and uh, the uh, integrity of the boardroom and of the CEO. And that brings you face to face then with the emerging trend in the last, I guess, decade, maybe a bit more, of the ideologicalization, if that's a word, of the company boardroom. And when I've heard you talk about this before, you've said this is the part of your business which has just exploded. You've gone from doing loads of the asset management stuff to that being a much smaller proportion of your business because you're doing something else in board meetings uh, or in company meetings, rather. Do you want to tell us about that and what that's involved? Yeah. So there's this idea um, that flies under the acronym ESG, Environmental Social Governance Investing. Um, and it's really political in origin. It came from the uh, United Nations. There was a UN committee that um, uh, sponsored a paper. I think that was 2005. Um, and they took a reasonable idea, which is that the structure of governance of the board of directors of the company is relevant to investors. And they, in essence, kind of Trojan horsed Um, environmental and social causes together. They added the E and the S to the G. Hmm. Um, Now, I think anyone who studies the Gospels and does it with their financial awareness switched on, not just their theology awareness switched on, sees in the parables of Jesus, Jesus dealing with the issue of governance and stewardship. You have a number of parables, which essentially are dealing with what economists think they discovered in the 20th century, agency risk, which Jesus was speaking about, you know, in the first century. And frankly, it's there in Isaiah, too. Um, I think Jesus just saw a more more modern version of it, which is if I'm the owner and I entrust assets to somebody and I'm not um, managing them on a day to day basis, there is the possibility that that person will pursue their own interests at the expense of mine Hmm. rather than pursuing their interests by pursuing my interest. So an asset manager who says, I'm going to please my master by getting the best return is aligning our interests. Hmm. But somebody who says, look, I'm too, you know, I'm too old to dig and I'm too proud to beg. um, uh, Therefore, um, I'm going to uh, kind of make a separate deal mm-hmm. with other stakeholders, uh, and I'm going to do something that's contrary to the interest of the owner, but is in alliance with my interest. Economists call that agency risk. Our agent, the CEO, is our agent because you have a separation between management of the asset and ownership of the asset. Um, and that comes up, and that's that's something that Yahweh faces when he entrusts his oracles to Israel, when he digs them, you know, builds a wall and plants uh, a vine and digs a well in the promised land for them and then entrusts it to them, are you going to serve me, you know, or are you going to serve yourself? Um, And by the first century, that essentially is at crisis proportion where Israel, the Israel's the Judean elite are essentially almost entirely self-dealing. So now you have Jesus up there in Galilee um, where you have all these financial market, all these financial market instruments kind of appearing, you know, shortly before his time on earth, where you, where you have separation between ownership and management. He is seeing the Greek and Roman financial systems, which are kind of like ours in many ways, where you had separation of owner and steward. Jesus, a young Jesus is looking at that. He is seeing in real time these new economic arrangements. And then in essence, he looks at that. He's up there in Galilee. Galilee is a trading zone. Mm. Um, So you don't have a lot of that stuff down in Judea. Judea is a company town and the company is the temple. Um, But up, up in Galilee, 
you have, you know, the, the, we have Maria, you have the, you know, the road from the sea, you have trading zones. Jesus, Nazareth is really close to Sepphoris, which was a banking center. So Jesus is growing up around all this stuff and it's new stuff. It would have been the topic of conversation. What about this? How does all this work? What do we think about this? Can, can we do business with these people? Because they're, you know, they're Gentiles and, you know, look how they do business and we're used to barter, but they use money um, and we don't charge interest, but they do charge interest. And, you know, all this stuff is going on and Jesus is looking at that. And in essence, he takes that and applies it, kind of splices it with the, the stuff that's already going on in Torah and in the and in the prophets and says, ah, this is the problem. Um, this is what I- Israel they're like the renters, the, the leaders of Israel are like the renters of a vineyard. They don't own it. They're supposed to be operating it on behalf of somebody else, mm. but they keep stealing. Um, and so G- Jesus is extremely economically insightful at this point. You know, uh, the, the issue of agency risk is really important and he identifies it very early and he applies it in brilliant ways theologically to what's going on in Israel, but he's also applying it economically and financially. Right. Right. And now in the modern world, when we have publicly traded stock markets where there's even more distance. So if you're an owner of a stock of a share in Tesla or General Motors or Bank of America or JP Morgan, you are very distant hmm. from power. You know, you can't you can't go down to the headquarters and say, I'm a shareholder. Uh, I'd like to inspect the uh, you know the factory, please. I mean, you know, you so you're so what we do is we look for companies where Shareholders all have the same voting rights, where the CEO works for the board, not the other way around, where the structure reflects the primacy of the owner over the steward. Um, so whether they're personally virtuous or not, that's a different question. Right. The, the, system, right. the system might counter their personal vice. Or, you know, if if they've been there for a while and they haven't tried to insulate themselves from their own owners, that indicates that they get it, hmm. Right. Oh, whatever it amounts to, we look for situations where they are not like the unfaithful steward who's practicing stakeholder capitalism right. rather right. than shareholder capitalism, um, serving various constituencies, you know, for his own benefit, but where um, they understand there's an ownership orientation, as Warren right. Buffett would say. To just flesh that out for us, because that's a buzzword that a buzz phrase that people will have heard. Um, so shareholder capitalism is the is the piece where the shareholder invests his capital in the business and then does so in anticipation of a return either through a dividend or an increased value to his share of the company. Stakeholder capitalism, that's what exactly? Flesh that out for us. Stakeholder capitalism is a philosophy of management which says that um, there, instead of having one um, interest group towards which you owe allegiance – your owners. The owner, yeah. right? Instead, the owners, you know, they deserve some allegiance. The, the employees, unions maybe, they deserve some allegiance. So you should put union members on the board, for example, in, that, in this philosophy. Uh, the uh, historically underrepresented minority groups, they deserve some allegiance. Social justice deserves some allegiance. The planet deserves some allegiance. Uh, maybe penguins or polar bears. Uh, suppliers deserve allegiance. Indigenous peoples deserve allegiance. But essentially, any interest group right. deserves allegiance. Now, what does that mean in reality? In reality, it means that the CEO of the company on any given day is deciding which stakeholder they answer to. Right. Which really is, a, it's not... It's not a distribution of power from shareholders to stakeholders. It's a distribution of power from shareholders to managers, right? to CEOs. Because it allows them to be held captive by whichever ideological interest group is shouting the loudest. Yes, or they're allow- some, of them, it, some, some of them are held captive or some of them can choose whichever interest group they want to pay attention to. So I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with CEOs at annual meetings where I talk about them say pandering to gender ideology Mm -hmm. and the answer is that's what our employees want and my question is which employees have you done a survey of all your employees Mm -hmm. disney no what happens is 
the the organized interest group um, employees come forward. So the LGBTQ groups, they they sign a statement and they say, this is what we employees want. And the Christian employees, two months later, do an unsigned one because they're afraid they're going to get fired because management has signaled its alliance with one particular group. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the CEO of Disney, um, the, pre, uh, the, the current one, very, very much a Hollywood guy, very aligned with the alphabet agenda. You know, he's able to say, well, I just want to listen to my employees. Mm-hmm. Understand, and, they, and I've asked over and over again. None of them have ever done a survey of all employees about whether they should be involved in these social issues. Right. They right. wait to see who fills up their inbox, but they ignore their employees often, even their activist employees. So they get to choose who they listen to. So, so it's huh. a little bit like, you know, the kid can go to ask mom, ask dad, right? The, you know, the child will ask whichever one they think is going to give, give them the, the right answer. So, yeah. the, so, so the CE, CEOs can pay attention to whichever stakeholder right. is going yeah. to tell them to do what they already want to do. So does that indicate then that, again, in, in these fairly large company structures, you seem to be suggesting that the, the Christians, if they got themselves organized, could potentially at least put their management in a position where the management could move the needle if they wanted to. They'll have, they, they could point to a community of uh, principled Christians in the company that wanted something more like, uh, let's return to uh, making movies rather than pushing a gender ideology. I, I think that in, co- in coordination with the shareholders themselves who right. legally are the ones who have the authority. So the adult supervision of a publicly traded company is the shareholder, the investor. Right, right. Which is so your point in, again. In the legal, yeah. Right. Now, that the, we, we should be working with Christian, they, they're called ERGs, employee resource groups. Um, so some of these companies don't have Christian employee resource groups. That shows how biased they are. Right. There's maybe, there's maybe there, there might be three, two or three flavors of sexual identity groups. Um, and there might be three or four flavors of ethnic identity groups, but there's no, often no faith identity group at all, or mm. there's one glommed coexist faith identity group with the Sikhs and the Muslims and the Christians all sort of together under whatever that religion stuff is, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of these companies, but but some of them do. So kind of a next horizon here for us is when we're dealing with management of companies, to be dealing more with the Christian groups in these companies. Now, they're frankly, they're afraid. Yes. And they have reason to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if they want to kind of martyr themselves professionally here, then God bless them, but I wouldn't press them to do so. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, to the degree that, let's say you have a situation where a a large bank very ostentatiously cancels the account of a religious group. Um, and, you know, there's a bank that did that last year, at least yeah. apparently, J.P. Morgan yeah. Chase. And um, we work with David Bonson. David Bonson's an investor. He put a proposal on the ballot. So we don't do the proposals. We help people like David right. do these proposals. Right. And it went before the shareholders. And there was a lot of controversy. And it was the most asked question at the annual meeting. And all the questions were negative about how the bank had behaved. Hmm. So I think in situations like that, it might embolden some of the Christian employee resource groups to speak out. Right. At the very least, I'd, I'd want them to pray and to talk about it internally. Um, I think in, a, in the case of a company like Disney, I absolutely get why the statement from the Christian employees was anonymous. Yes, yes. yes. Because there's just so much tail risk for those people in, that they, they, they're incurring the potential for an extreme uh downside you know they'll lose their job not able to provide for their families and so on because of um, standing up publicly they are now you there have been a couple of supreme court cases recently including one that was very amenable to the religious freedom restoration act where there, there might be some teeth here where if a christian employee resource group of a company like this speaks to management in support of a proposal that's on the ballot, um, and then they get fired, then you know perhaps some of these Christian litigation groups that we work with a lot can come in and say, "Okay, 
Yeah. Let's see how that holds up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that intrigues me here, Jerry, just going back to the stakeholder capitalism point, is that it feels like a a very persuasive, intuitively persuasive case to make superficially to say, you know, a large company like a large bank or a, or a Walmart or a, a big retailer, they do impact other communities and sub-communities besides their shareholders. Let's call them stakeholders. Uh, what about those people? What about the people who live in homes who are affected by the traffic to the stores and so on? And I guess my, my thought has always been, yes, those those people matter. Of course, those people matter. And the way that their opinions should be heard is via the concerns made known to and through the owners of the company, the actual shareholders. Do you, would you want to nuance yes, that or and, add to and, it? And, and, and other institutions that are actually tasked with traffic management, like, for instance, the municipal authorities. Right. Right. So there's a way to do that. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, the kind of engagement we're doing, we're certainly not complaining because companies are maybe widening roads in their local communities. It's more like um, pandering, right? You know, to uh, in issues where they have almost no direct effect. The penguins so, and polar bears piece. Penguins and polar bears, and is rioting really all that bad? Right, right. You know, after the George Floyd killing you know, uh, giving money to BLM Foundation or or let's look at the risk of doing business in states which uh, restrict reproductive freedom. Hmm. I mean, I've got, I'm in Pittsburgh here. We, there's a company, Duolingo, that said, if Pennsylvania passes anti-choice law, we're going to move our headquarters. Right. I'm sorry. That is, that is just fiscally and financially irresponsible. Even if, and I do not concede the point, mm-hmm. even if pro-life laws have a negative impact on business, which I think is bunk anyway. Right. Um, their argument is absolutely ridiculous. Their argument is, well, women can't get abortions, therefore they're going to get out of the workforce. I've run the numbers on this. The number of abortions prevent, prevented by these laws is sadly minusculely small. So if you're a Walmart and you have 10,000 women working in, 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 in uh, Texas and they pass a heartbeat bill, you basically your risk is maybe four or five women out of 10,000 are going to drop out of the, or the workforce. In the meantime, population is flooding out of New York to Texas. Right. So if you're worried about workforce, divest from Chicago, divest from New York, divest from San Francisco, because people are are fleeing yeah. those places like they're on C- fire. Come to where the but, customers are. It's nonsense. But even, even if it did matter, to make to, to have been a company that was founded in a city, to have all your, your headquarter employees in that city and to make all of them pull up stakes and move to another place right. for the tenth of a percent of them that are going to get abortions, that'll have to, I don't know, drive half an hour north to New York to get them. Or it's say an hour north to, to New York. So that's it. That's the cost. They're going to have to drive to New York hmm. for an hour to get their abortions. And you're going to move over that? It's pandering. Right. And it's interesting because right? what, what you're seeing there is it's a, it's a kind of gesture politics, which runs headlong into the created realities that you're talking about before. In the end, um, yeah. a, a society that is structured in such a way that people have children and raise families will turn out to be a, a society in which there is a growing workforce and a growing consumer base and a growing wealth effect and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know what industry is. I, I don't know what industry in America is helped by the abortion industry, uh, other than maybe psychiatric care because of the guilt hmm. that women bear for the rest of their lives, and the men who participated in it. Maybe antidepressants. I don't know. I hmm. mean, it just it hurts every other industry because every other industry needs workers and customers. Right, right, right. Uh, so abortion is a destroyer. A value. And, you know, one example I love to talk about, I hate to talk about it, but I love to talk about it, which is Toys R Us, the toy chain that went bankrupt. Um, Now, they had a choice when the Susan Komen Foundation was found out to have been funneling money to Planned Parenthood, Susan, which is supposed to be breast cancer. Right. uh, But and and Planned Parenthood doesn't scan for breast cancer. They just talk about it. Um, So Susan Komen was funneling money to Planned Parenthood. It was found out. They said, we're not going to do that anymore. Then there was a big fight and they said, okay, we will. Um, Toys R Us supported 
the Susan Komen Foundation in that decision. So they were making a decision to support abortion. Several years later, they went bankrupt. And in their bankruptcy statement, they said one of the major reasons was falling fertility rates means that they had fewer customers for toys. And it's like, no, it's not, it's not fertility rates. It's birth rates. Right. Um, you, you, fertility rates haven't changed that. It's, it's yes. birth rates. Yes. Yes. Uh, th- those women were fertile and they conceived. Men and women conceived, but the babies were not born. And the ba- babies who aren't born don't, aren't given baby showers. Yeah, they don't get and toys. And they're not given first birthdays and second birthdays and third and mm. fourth and fifth. No one gives toys to them, which they would have bought from Toys R Us. If they were grown up as How kids who were loved. How could be so blind yeah. Toys R Us? Yeah. Jerry, it's fascinating talk, talking to you about this stuff because as I zoom out and look at the, the areas of expertise that you've developed, you, you're bringing together economics, aspects of biblical study, social policy, um, investment management, and so on. All of us as Christians recognize these subjects, but it's so rare that we see them all brought into dialogue with each other and into dialogue with scriptural and theological concerns. And I, I wonder if we can just pivot slightly. We've got a few minutes left before I need to let you go. Um, I wonder if we can pivot to the, the way in which the work you've done biblically and, and professionally has the most direct kinds of impacts for, let's say, the man and woman in the pew of your average church. All Saints is a, a blessed and wonderful, but in many ways, a very average church. We've been growing wonderfully. We've got a bunch of young families. Some families have been here longer, a uh, whole crowd of teenagers, um, a number of folks who are growing older, approaching retirement or in retirement. And one of the connections you're seeing, you're seeing between uh, the gospel and work and financial productivity and owners taking responsibility for their uh, business affairs and so on. So can you speak to, I'll put this as generally as I can, can you speak to the way in which these Christian economic principles really hit home with men and women, husbands and fathers, uh, young people, young couples, and so on? I think that mainly what I'm seeing is not a specific application, mm-hmm. but more like, you know, when when I speak about the book, the reaction I I ne- I almost never say, and this is what you need need to do differently in your life. Right. Um, it's just that's kind of the ro- that's the role of the Holy Spirit. The shift I see sometimes with tears in their eyes, mm-hmm. people come and say, basically, you have shown me that Jesus gets me as somebody who's a marketplace participant Hmm. or as an entrepreneur uh, or somebody who's in the for-profit sector. My whole life, I felt like um, Jesus kind of puts up with me. Right. Because Jesus is a closet Marxist, right? And and he he, he really wishes he didn't have any money. Yeah. I mean, if you give enough away, then you've atoned. Um, You know, I've seen... Yeah, I was just talking with our with our my friend David Bonson about this. There's a great book coming out about work, and I read the manuscript. You know, some of these Christian executive groups they bring in Tan- Tony Campolo or formerly Ron Sider, and they harangue them from the left about how bad capitalism is, and then they pass you know not the bucket because these are big check writers. And so, in essence, it's well, maybe you can maybe you're not like the rich young ruler where you have to give it all away, but you should give a lot of it away to me. Um, in order to atone for being an economically productive person. Um, And so what they feel like if they're in business is that church or theology world treats them as guilty until proven innocent. Oh, you're in business. You're probably greedy. I'm in ministry. I'm probably not greedy. Or I'm in politics. I'm service oriented. You're in business. You're greedy. Uh, and what I see in the Gospels is every single confrontation that Jesus has over the question of greed with a wealthy individual takes place in Judea, near Jerusalem, with somebody who is in geographical and social proximity to the political ruling class, which uses its political and religious power to extract wealth from people. Zero percent of those confrontations take place in Galilee which is a more entrepreneurial economy, flatter, uh, smaller businesses, lower tax, more trade, more dynamic. 
um, and more market oriented, zero confrontations over wealth with anybody who in essence is a creator of wealth in the marketplace. Right. 100% confrontations of, of wealth occur with the rich young ruler, hmm. Zacchaeus, the art tax collector, the Judean elite, including the money changers who have a government guaranteed monopoly with fixed price and a tax associated with it. Uh, and the fixed price is a ripoff in terms of the currency value where you have to pay twice as much much in dinar money to get the heavy temple shekel mm-hmm. in order to pay. So there's a 100, there's a government mandated 100% upsell on right. any transaction right. with the temple. So, so Jesus is not mad at ATM machines. Uh, he's mad at the temple becoming a crooked ATM machine, mm. which is cheating people, which is why he calls them a den of robbers. And it's why when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler and he lists the commandments, he says, do not defraud, which is actually not one of the Ten Commandments. And I think the point is clear because that man and his class defraud by nature. That's the business model. And it's exactly the same word that Jesus uses, excuse me, that James, either Jesus's younger brother or the apostle. Mm. Jeff Myers has mostly convinced me that it's the apostle. Yeah, he more or less did uh, that But whoever it is, what, what's he that? He more or less did that with me as well. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's make a, he makes a great case. Um, uh, so, but whoever it is, that person talking in, from Jerusalem says, do not rich men defraud you. Same word in the Greek, hmm. stereo. Yeah. Um, so what is he saying? Some of them defraud you? No, the ruling class model was fraud. Right, right. There's a few, there's a Nicodemus, you know, Joseph Arimathea, there's a few exceptions, but the model was essentially some version of Tony Soprano, but with, you know, religious Hmm. garb, right? Um, And therefore, once people see that, who've always felt like, well, you're in business, but maybe you're not greedy, prove to me you're not. Hmm. In essence, it's, well, you're a religious leader or you're a political leader, prove to me that you're not greedy. Right. And maybe you're not. It. Jesus turns the tables entirely, right, against our kind of modern, the two, there's either the religious conversation, you're not in ministry, therefore you're greedy, and the political conversation, you're not in politics, therefore you're greedy. When all of those who are confronted over greed are people associated with religious status and political power in the gospel. And what that does is it, when it's kind of gets into people's heart and it's like, oh, it's okay, it's, it's, it's okay. Right. It's okay that I do this. It's very okay. And the people who've been pointing the finger at me, they're the ones who need to prove that they're not greedy. Hmm. So what's the, 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 the problem is with what we might call crony capitalism. It's the leveraging of, it. of political power to bolster your um, economic situation. It's not the guy who's trying to grow his business, trying to make as much money as he can, trying to work hard and doesn't want handouts just wants to put bread on the table and, and employ more people and serve more people in the community. Cro- yeah, cronyism, crony capitalism, state corporatism, fascism. Um, you know, there's all uh, the extractive economy. Uh, some people called it. I, I mean, it has a lot of names because it, there's a lot of examples of it. Economies, uh, I'm, I'm not big into Ayn Rand by a long shot, mm. but, you know, I, I, there's a phrase she likes, an economy that runs on pull, who has pull as opposed to who's productive, that's what we're talking right, about. Right. And uh, by the way, I'm not into Rand, but I just, that's, yes, that's a good phrase. The influence economy, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's, that's what Judea had become. Right. And that's, right. and Jesus exposes that and that's why they kill him. Right. Because because he exposes the, the thing that strikes me, this touches on debates which are, were common. I mean, you mentioned Ron Sider, um, that the, the myth of the socialist Jesus, as it says on the blurb on the back of your book, that's so prevalent still in some quarters. And I think the reason why is, it's kind of obvious, because Jesus commends generosity. And we've fallen for the lie, which is the socialist statist lie, which is that the civil authority, the state is the only game in town. And therefore, if we want generosity, then it has to be um, straight state sanctioned, uh, mandated, capital extraction from earners in order to give, quote unquote, which is not give, it's redistribute to the poor. Um, so right. so in one sense, your your book 
flattens that and it leaves remaining this question then okay so jesus does commend generosity the scriptures from beginning to end commend generosity right um so speak to that issue for us you're you're not saying uh that we don't need to be generous that those who've made uh significant money like many in the west have either from their employment or from small business or whatever you're not saying that it's ours to keep and you never need to give it away, right? What are you saying at that point? No, of course not. Right. Um, it, it, the question is, what is what is biblical generosity? Mm. Biblical generosity is not atonement for having been economically productive. Right. Biblical generosity <laughs> is love um, of God and his people used to help those who God loves mm. um, to mm. build the kingdom. So the, 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 the biblical generosity, we had a lot of generosity content from Paul. It's for the sake of building the kingdom. Right. Um, and right. it's love of the brothers for one another. And not just brothers, but we're supposed to love people outside the faith too, right. but especially those inside the faith. Yeah. So we're not atoning. Hmm. Um, and so biblical generosity is in many ways the opposite of political generosity because political generosity is highly performatory. Hmm. But Jesus is very clear that generosity should be not performative. Yes. It should yeah. be done quietly in secret. So secret that it's like one hand not knowing what the yeah. other hand is yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, and I think the other kind of generosity, and in my circles with Christian financial professionals, there's a lot of talk about the generosity agenda. And I'm not really crazy about that word because generosity, if you say to me, you know, are you, are you, you want to be generous? What you're really asking me is what compliment do I want to give to myself? Do, do I want, in my listing of attributes, do I want generosity to be one of the attributes? Mm. As opposed to, do you love that person? Mm. Do you love that church? Do you, do you love people who are harmed in this way? See, if you're, then, see then it's about them. Right. Right. right? Um, generosity is about, about me. Right. Um, and so political generosity is like that. And the other thing is, it's not really generous. And, and, you know, I talk about Judas in the book. I have a whole chapter on him because I think he's really an important economic figure. Because I think Judas is essentially, he is, as far as we can tell, the only Judean who's among the 12. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because Judas Ish Cariot, yes. Ish Man Cariot, um, is a city in Judea. Mm. Um, or carry out, I might actually refer to Jerusalem itself, yes, right? Yes, but yes. It's, but he appears to be a Judean. After he's no longer one of the 12, the angels address the remaining 11 as men of Galilee. Galilee. Of course they do. Of course they do. Right? So, and he clearly is more associated. He, he makes a deal with the Sadducean mm-hmm. elite, with the temple. He knows them. Okay. So what yeah. they had done is they had centralized tithe. In the Bible, the, the, the poor tithe is local. Yes, yes. Well, and, and uh, okay, but there's oh, no, pardon me. All the all the generosity in in scripture is local. This is one of the things that strikes me about um, the effective altruism movement. I mean, for for all of its, um, it, there's there's at least some ethical clarity there. And the question, where can I spend my dollars so that they're going to do the most good? As long as we could define good in some way that's got some uh, depth to it, that that doesn't sound like a bad question to ask. But a lot of it involves sending money. To places where it's a long way away and where the relational component of generosity is just absent and actually there's less love in the sense that there's a real costliness to dealing with the person in front of you where the relationship that you have with them brings other obligations that are not just financial you you end up having to give yourself to people uh, and yes. Christians in churches know this. It, you 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 lend somebody a hundred dollars to help them out of a, a utility bill black hole, and then they pay it back over three or four weeks. And but what's actually happened there is you've you've incurred a relational. You're bound to them. Yeah, now, there's, there's, there's some connection there, and that it's that which is okay. It can be exploited. It can go sideways, but it's actually that in which the love is manifested, and. Yeah, and, and I think the argument. And by the way, I, I can go longer if you need. We don't. We don't. From my standpoint, right. we don't have a hard break. Okay. Um, That's great. Uh, so uh, the the uh, the counter argument, which I think is the Judas argument, um, and the welfare state argument, is that there's efficiency to centralizing this. Hmm. Um, so 
at least I think it's Edersheim who says essentially the poor tithe is moved from the village to the temple. So it's like, we'll handle it here. We'll have a common purse. Um, because it's interesting. Why do you have so many beggars around the temple? Right. I mean, it's an interesting question. They've got lots of people, I guess. Right? They've got that? lots of people passing by. Yeah. And the temple was saying, we will take care of the mm. poor. Give mm. us the tithe and we'll take care of the poor. So the poor kind of show up expecting to be taken care oh, of, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I would argue that, um, you know, that the uh, parable, this, this will be a stretch unless people read the chapter, that the, that the story or parable about Lazarus and the rich man yes. is about the poor on the doorstep of the high priest. Mm-hmm. And you wait, what do you mean why high priest? There's so many reasons why the rich man is almost certainly the high priest. Um Purple and fine linen, mm-hmm. dining, you know, uh, uh, twice a day uh, in celebration in the Greek by lamp. Um, uh, in, in, in my father's house, they have the law and the prophets. And if, if that does all, all that, and there's a portico, a pulos, <laughs> which is language, the porch is associated with the porch of a temple. And if that doesn't convince you, the only public figure that I can find in first century Judea who is known to have had five brothers was Caiaphas. <laughs> yes. Um, so Josephus says Caiaphas had five brothers-in-law. Right. Right. High priest. And I've I've, I've searched Josephus and Philo. Nobody else has that. That's okay. Fascinating. That it's the high priest. I'm sorry. It just is. Right. And and that goes back to the church fathers. That's not my insight. So the poor are at the doorstep, and they're left there with the dogs and the Gentiles, essentially the Romans mm-hmm. licking their wounds, and and taking care of them. So Judas is the stand-in. For the Judean elite economy. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He has a common purse yep. for the sake of the poor, uses guilt to build it. This nard could have been used for the poor and then steals from yeah. it. That is yeah. a microcosm of the economic system of Judea right there for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it's a microcosm of um, the way in which the guilt-tripping uh we we need to raise taxes to help the poor motif works in contemporary politics as well that um that, that it's the the great thing that no, nobody seems willing to say in public although occasionally they do and 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 everyone seems surprised like it's it's a tremendously inefficient way to help the poor, to give more money to central government. I mean, Elon Musk made this point about when he was asked about his taxes. Do you remember that? When um, he said that, that the super rich should not pay taxes. And he was just sort of challenged about that. And he said, well, look, the people who've proven themselves to be the best capital managers should not be giving their capital to the entity that has proven itself to be the very worst capital management. Right. And if right. you really cared about the poor, you'd look at someone like Bill Gates um, you look at Steve Jobs and you look at um, uh, Bezos and you look at Musk and you say, these guys have done more to employ more people, not just in their companies, but in the many, many, many other companies with part-time jobs right. and full-time jobs that are all dependent on the businesses they've built. If, if I can't remember who, which of the, um, the big five or whatever it was who was singled out, but it, as a guy, it might have been Bezos, was singled out by some writer as the one who, the one man who's probably done more to help the poor in our generation than anybody else. And he's done it by building this massive company. I was just in a conversation with a young man. It was kind of amazing because he's a financial advisor, and he was going on and on about how Jeff Bezos is so terrible, you know, because he makes so much money, um, and and you know his people make so little money. So I said, okay, what's his salary? So we just right there and then we looked at his salary. And then we looked at the number of people who are Amazon employees. And then there's a lot of subcontractors. Mm -hmm. Divide his salary over them. If he gives it all away, he's giving them a $30 a year bonus. I'm sorry, that's not his biggest impact on their life. Mm. It isn't him going to a zero salary. Yes, yes. Um, it's him yeah. giving them jobs. And it just so happened someone else was sitting nearby and he said, by the way, my son works for Amazon as one of those subcontractors. <laughs> Makes $18 yeah. an hour. It's more than he's ever made yeah, in his yeah. life. Wave of minimum wage. He's really happy wage. with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He has flexibility. He didn't have any job experience. He was able to do this. It has been a great mm, deal huge. for him. So you, you mentioned young people. Um, so, I've got one more question I want to ask you, and then um, I, I probably need to dash myself. I'm sure you do. Um, the 
the young man, the hypothetical young man, we got a bunch of um, enthusiastic, uh, godly young teenagers and young adults in the church here. Um, the standard uh, narrative that they would hear in some church contexts would be, well, you know, when you're looking for a job, you should feel slightly guilty to the degree that you're motivated by making significant money. You really should be in one of the, the caring vocations, or maybe you should be a missionary or a pastor. Um, that will be nuanced slightly in some contexts by the recognition of, well, it's a good thing to provide for your family. But I have a suspicion that you'd want to say something different, both about hard work as a virtue and a part of Christian character, and also about um, the aspiration to make money and to give money. What would you want to say about those things to our hypothetical young person? Well, I would want to say that is God just in ministry or did he make a physical universe? Um, you know, I mean, what, we look at God and what does he do? Looks like an engineering project to a large degree. Right. He separates heaven and earth. Uh, there's hydraulic engineering, separates the waters above from the waters below. There's more hydraulic engineering, the dry land and the seas. Uh, there's horticulture. Mm. Um, by the way, there's these rivers going out from Eden. Um, and, and it's interesting the way that's written because the way it's written is the, the text goes out of its way to associate. There's like a sandwich here in the text. It's associating the creation of Adam mm. with a mist coming up from the ground and the, and the plants had not yet grown up because there was not someone to water them. Yes. Yes. And then immediately yeah. we switch over to sort of the rivers of Eden travelogue as if there's, as if that's an addition into the text when I would argue it's like, okay, God's making Adam. Um, he's making a garden. There is a water problem in the garden. There's going to need to, or in the land, yeah. um, there's going to need to be irrigation done. Adam doesn't know how to do irrigation. God does rivers, which is God scale irrigation and then creates Adam. I would suggest that the rivers are a demonstration project for Adam. Mm. Otherwise, the flow of the text doesn't really yes. make any sense. There's no, there's no water, and there's no, and there's no one. I could see there's no water, and there's no one to water it. So then we'll make Adam, right? And not yeah. have any of the thing about the four rivers. But Adam, Adam is made in the midst of a demonstration project on how to water plants. Mm. So I see I, I, what I see is. God literally in a secular occupation in uh, Genesis 1 up until the seventh day, hmm. in which case then he becomes a minister. Um, so God so God works in, he, he, he Kadesh's the seventh day and makes it holy. Uh, so God is acting as priest, but he is, he, he is, a, a, a God had, had a day job, yeah. a six yeah. day job. Creative. And yeah. it was physical. Yeah, so I would say that men made in God's image mm. should have those jobs. And yes, some of us will have a Kadesh mm. seventh day job. Right. Um, just like that is an aspect of God's work in the world is to make that holy and to have a special garden and to visit that garden, to process into it, you know, um, on the Lord's day. Uh, so all those occupations are fine, but God mostly... Mm we got mostly working yes. in the secular yeah, marketplace. Yeah, yeah. So I think most of us do that. So we should do it unashamedly. Yes, without, without uh, and it, whatever, maybe you're a hydraulic engineer or maybe you're a janitor. Yes, yes. I've been a janitor, which is also about, about water and using it to clean things. Right. Whatever level yeah. you're at, you're acting like the triune sovereign God yes. uh, in a microcosmic scale. So really, if somebody says that stuff, yeah, yeah, just – Find someone else to yeah, hang yeah. out with. I, I wonder whether part, part of our problem is that we yeah. we we forget the relationship between money and wealth, and we we treat them as though they're the same thing, and so we we ignore the reality that some somebody who's making a lot of money is doing so because they are creating wealth in the sense of fruitfulness in the world. That is to say, you're, you're, yes. you're bringing about, even, even if it's knowledge work that you're doing, you're writing code, you're, you're, um, you're, what you're doing is you're changing the world somehow for other people to live in it yes. so that it's a more glorious world. 
And you can't do that. Yes. You can't earn money doing that without doing it well. And I think we just lose sight of the tangible created goodness that we're charged to bring about in um in yeah. Genesis 1 and we we feel guilty because people pay us dollar bills to do it and we think we shouldn't have too many dollar bills because of what Jesus said about the rich. Yeah, that's the right. That, that, that's, a, that's a great point um because uh, there's a whole thing we could do about money because in essence Jesus would have had would have had friends and families who were in a barter economy. Right, right. And he would have had friends and family who were in a money economy. So the money economy was associated with international trade and taxes. Um, and temple transactions. And a lot of the other was informal and barter. So Jesus is wrestling with, just as he's wrestling with the agency problem, he's wrestling with the money problem. And Jesus, again, is a brilliant economist. Money isn't wealth. Right. Money right. is a medium of exchange. So money is essentially a ticket system mm -hmm. for the exchange of, of wealth and transactions. I do a thing for you, you do a thing for me. But because it just might be now, right now, our transaction is a barter transaction. I like being on your podcast. You like having me on your podcast. But most transactions don't align that well. So instead, I have to do something for somebody else, and that somebody else does something for somebody else, and then it gets back over to you. So money makes that efficient. Right, right. So, of course, Jesus right. would say that you can't serve money. How in the world could you serve money? Mm -hmm. Money has doesn't have a purpose in and of itself. Money is truly worthless in and of itself. It is a transaction. Um, it, it makes transactions more frictionless, but money has no right. value. And the best right. economists have always known that money has no value, which is why we don't use commodities right. for we money. Right. We don't change, we don't trade computer mm -hmm. chips. We don't, uh, we don't trade steel. We traded gold because essentially gold didn't have a lot of uses other than as mm -hmm. money. So that's why commodity money, real commodity money, doesn't tend to work because it has a value in and yeah, of and itself. And it would get traded for that. Money, stuff, yeah. mo right. Money doesn't know that you're serving it. Therefore, you can't really serve mm -hmm. it. So now, if you understand that money is something you use to serve other people, great. That's not mammon. Right. That's yeah. love. And and you, you can't serve God and money, but you can serve God by serving your family. And specifically, yes. Scripture says, by serving the ground, working the ground working the land, right. working right. to serve people. So you can you can absolutely be serving the living God by giving your 110% to serve the people in front of you in your, your job, by whatever you're doing right. in your work to serve your family, to be a blessing to other people. Money is the medium by which you get from doing that stuff for your work to being able to serve those people. If money were wealth, right now the economy would be booming and we have no inflation. Right, because we've got so much dollar Because bills. we've created a lot of money. Right, right. Uh, and that's the Keynesian illusion, going back to Keynes and his atheist economics. You can't print, you can print money, but you can't print right, wealth. Right, You have to work for wealth. You have to make yeah. hard work through the sweat of your Hence, um, so. the maker versus the takers. There we are. There what a way go. to end. Um, Mr. Boyer, thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Um, uh, I've had a chance to get to know uh, Jerry uh, through the Theopolis Advisory Board in the last year or two and uh, one or two other places. And I'm very, very grateful to you for joining me today on the podcast. I know that our listeners will be grateful too, as they've heard you. Really, this eclectic and biblically saturated and quite unique set of perspectives that you bring to bear on um, some of the challenges facing us in the modern uh, world and modern economy in particular. Thank you, Jerry, for coming on. It's been great to talk to you. My pleasure and right. honor. God bless. You too.